Hello, welcome to Eye Three Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week? This week, you've crafted a really cool summary of the differential for enlarged corneal nerves, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, like in real life, I don't know if this is the most high yield thing to for like the average clinician to know, but in my experience, boards loves this kind of thing. So I think it's a good thing to go over and it lets us go over a lot of a hodgepodge of different diseases that are also board favorite topics to, to review. And you've got one of your wonderful patented mnemonics for it. I, I love this script so far that you've put together. So far, he says. So far, he says. <laughs> like, this is one of those things where, like, yeah, in real life, I don't pay attention really to these nerves because it, the diseases they might be associated with are so rare. Right. And then even on testing, it's like, I don't know, I just, I, I could probably recite to you two or three things that I remember, but this, uh, this package of this, the next 15 minutes or so is great. I hope so. And so um, <laughs> to to here's here's our cell or our hook is if you can identify an enlarged corneal nerve, you too could save someone's life someday. So we'll talk about how that's plausible. <laughs> how that how that's even plausible. But first, let's talk about normal corneal nerves. So as you might expect, the sensation of the cornea is among the highest in the human body. It's about a hundred times more sensitive than the conjunctiva. And like, depending on what part of the skin, obviously you're looking at between 300 to 600 times more dense in terms of nerve endings than, than your skin. I'm reading somewhere it says 7,000 nociceptors per square millimeter. That's a lot. That's a lot <laughs> of nociceptors. Like... So what's important to remember is where those nerves come from, and they originate from the long ciliary nerves. So the long ciliary nerves start posteriorly, they travel under the sclera, classically at three or nine o'clock, penetrate through the stroma at the corneal limbus, and then from there dive up, and then in general live in the sepapithelium or even Bowman's layer. The, the one clinical reason it's important to know where they come from, these long ciliary nerves, is it guides you if you're doing PRP, panretinal photocoagulation. They classically teach you avoid three and nine o'clock when you're doing PRP because you don't want to ding those long ciliary nerves. We teach the same for transcleral cyclophotocoagulation. Hey, there you go. Good. Because <laughs> we're probably even right more up against this, those scleral uh, entry yeah, points. The plexuses? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like FYI, if it wasn't obvious, you generally on fundoscopic exam can see the long ciliary nerves. They look like these kind of pale whitish things around three and nine o'clock with usually some pigment at the borders of them. So if you look at like a lot of standard routine optos photos, you can actually see what those are. If you didn't know what those were before, you might be wondering like, what are these kind of weird straight lines in my retina? But that's, that's what those are. So try to avoid lasering those. Because if you do laser them in theory, then you can decrease corneal sensation, which can lead to other problems down the road. I did want to also mention you've done, you've described really well the geography, the anatomy of the nerves as they go from, I guess, the long ciliaries to the cornea. But going back the other direction from the long ciliaries back to, I guess, the origin of this innervation, they also go they branch off of the nasociliary nerves, which itself is a branch of the trigeminal nerve. 
And this is why you may have heard some talk more recently in the literature about like peripheral nerve blocks for persistent corneal pain or persistent dry eye. Some neuro-ophthalmologists and cornea specialists these days are talking about how really, really like out of proportion dry eye pain when really it doesn't look that bad to you on exam can be from like an feedback loop of pain through this trigeminal system, which seems like you can effectively block completely with like a nerve block, peripheral nerve block to the, one of the trigeminal branches. Yeah. And you know, that's a great segue into the next thing to talk about, which is how you can visualize these corneal nerves. Because if someone has that problem of neuropathic pain or their corneal nerves, and you can often, um, if you image the nerves right, see that there are in fact changes in the corneal nerves. So the best way to image them, because these are very fine, thin, grayish looking thing and a grayish looking structure of the cornea, the best way to visualize them is with confocal microscopy. So the basic gist of how it works is if you're just shining like a broad beam light source on, you know, like on the cornea or something, then you're never going to get enough focus on not only lateral focus on an object, but also the z-axis focus, your, your, your depth level of focus. So how confocal microscopy image works is it shines a point source of light. So it's usually either, um, you know, point source, just standard light or laser onto a spot. Then the microscope can determine the depth of whatever you're trying to p- image, and then it'll snap a picture of just that point. And then it does this thousands of times to assemble a whole image. And that's how you get confocal microscopy. So this allows high-resolution pictures of a, at a specific depth with an object, which you can imagine is very useful for the cornea. And there's a few reasons to do this for the cornea, but one of them is to image the corneal nerves, like we're talking about. This isn't the only way to see them. You can sometimes see them at the slit lamp and in the diseases we're going to talk about and in large corneal nerves. You should be, essentially always be able to see them at the slit lamp. But, um, you know, even in normal people, you can sometimes see them. They always start radially from the limbus and um, march inwards from the limbus. And they're always more prominent in the outer peripheral third of the cornea and then become less and less apparent. Like you usually can't see them in a normal person, kind of that middle third or and certainly not in the, the pupillary axis. So, yeah, if you ever see one of these things, like... This is not a BCSC thing, but just a Ben Young observation that in younger people, <laughs> it seems like it's easier to see the corneal nerves. So next time you see like a younger patient, maybe a routine exam where there's nothing wrong with them, try to look for these really fine gray lines in the stroma or Bowman's membrane. And yeah, that's that's what a corneal nerve looks like. And it's, I think it's important to identify what a normal one looks like so that you can tell when they're enlarged or different or whatever. So the next time you see somebody with Riley Day syndrome, just right, look yeah, to see if they're any different. Someone with uh, <laughs> one of these very peculiar and rare, rare diseases we'll talk about in a bit. So before we talk about the diseases where corneal nerves look enlarged, just one like ho- hopefully helpful guiding point besides trying to look at normal corneal nerves to figure out if they're enlarged is you should never be able to track a normal corneal nerve all the way to the central cornea. If you can, then in general, you should consider that enlarged. They should stay in the periphery visually, right? Right, right. At the slit lamp, right? With confocal microscopy, you should be able to visualize these things throughout. Yeah, Yeah, right. But 
most of us haven't even touched or seen a confocal I know. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe some like high end cornea people use them to help diagnose things like you know neuropathic corneas and stuff. So there's a lot of things to memorize on this list. We're gonna point out though. There's like one that I think you definitely should memorize because this is the one that can kill someone if you, in theory, don't recognize it. But then there's like a table in BCSC with all these things. And, you know, from my experience, it is something that can be testable, um, like any of these things on this list. I've seen a couple of mnemonics for this, Andrew. I don't know if you have a favorite mnemonic, but I kind of like modified one of the other mnemonics I'd seen so that it captures all the ones that are on the list that I think are important. I like yours. Okay, well, this one is remarking on large nerves. So remarking is the majority of the mnemonic and then large is like, there's like a loose L I couldn't figure out how to put in <laughs> remarking. So if someone has a better idea, please like go ahead and tweet at us. So let's just start from the top uh, and, and go from there. So Andrew already told us about the first one. The first Sorry. R, <laughs> no, it's good. The first R is Riley Day syndrome. So another name for it is familial dysautonomia. This is an inherited problem with nerves in, in general. But ophthalmic manifestations of it is that they'll have decreased pain in general. They'll have a neurotrophic cornea, so it's easy for them to get corneal ulcers. And you know, we'll probably do a whole episode of neurotrophic cornea at some point. But you know, they have poor corneal sensation. Interestingly, they'll have poor tear production when they become emotional. So, you know, poor emotional tearing as well as poor reflux tearing. You know, it's not just like the sensation nerves, but, you know, also autonomic nerves, such as those that are evoked when one watches The Notebook or related sad <laughs> films. You know, I always Why use can't I cry? <laughs> I, I always use The Notebook as my example of like a sad movie. Like in clinic, you know, I'll like, like if I'm try, trying to talk about crying or whatever, I, I always use Notebook. I, I got to tell you something and don't tell my patients this. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Well, okay. We'll do our, our review of the notebook in our next episode. Then. I, I don't think we need to. <laughs> Why not? What? It's clinically relevant. Okay. We'll have to review the movie to see if it genuinely evokes emotional tears. Oh my gosh. Okay. Add it to the Jones die test. Yeah, exactly. Jones test one, two, three, three the, notebook, the notebook, number four. <laughs> And, you know, this isn't a comprehensive review of Riley Day syndrome. They can have many other nerve problems, you know, like balance problems and uh, facial flushing, skin blotching, etc. But we won't go into all those, but those are the ones that are relevant for ophthalmology. Okay. Andrew, can you tell us what the E stands for? I think it's a little easy to remember. It's just anything where the cornea can be edematous. Uh, just all the swelling of the corneal stroma can make those corneal nerves sort of appear larger just in relief against all those that swelling. That's probably the most useful type of presentation for you to go look at the nerves just to learn what they're like, because you're unlikely to see somebody who's got Riley Day, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's hard to see, you know, because if they're like the corneal surface is like hazy or whatever. But yeah, I mean, That's true. Go, go nuts. And I, this is a good point to remark that these are not all causes of actually enlarged corneal nerves, as we'll try to point out throughout. Some of them are just causes of nerves appearing larger, mm -hmm. such as corneal edema, but they're not like actually enlarged. According to BCSC, 
in things like corneal edema. So we won't get, make a separate list for the two. That's how it's listed in BCSE. You know, I don't think it's going to be important to know whether they're truly enlarged or appear enlarged, but that's just like a FY throughout. Also, yeah. the BCSE notes Fuchs as a separate cause of a the appearance of enlarged coronal nerves, as in corneal edema, there's no comments, and I couldn't find uh, if it's a separate mechanism from the cornea becoming edematous. Like if Fuchs has some other special thing that that causes the appearance of large corneal nerves. So just a little side point. Okay, the next one is what what our hook was about: how you can save someone's life by carefully examining their corneal nerves, which is multiple endocrine and neoplasia type 2b so if you're going to remember like anything from this episode just remember that men 2b causes the appearance of enlarged corneal nerves and the reason that's the one thing we want you to remember is it means that you should screen patients who have men 2b for medullary thyroid carcinoma and in fact my understanding of the guidelines is anyone who has multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2b deserves a prophylactic thyroidectomy. Like that's how severe the problems can be. And they can also have pheochromocytomas. So that's also something that they should be worked up for. So, you know, if you're someone studying for your oral boards, this could just be like an oral board case presentation, right? They show you a picture and the picture has enlarged corneal nerves. And then that may be like all they give you. And like the key thing to remember is this one, because that's how you can save someone's life, not just their eye. Not to make this an episode about MEN2B specifically, but it's not just enlarged corneal nerves that, you know, that oral board picture might show you. They might also show you just weird kind of, I don't know, little warty looking things all over their eyelids or their conjunctiva even. And that goes back to how MEN2B also has a lot of mucosal neuromas. So any mucosal surface can have just a weird neuromal mass on it. So you have to look in the, in the mouth, on the lips and stuff. But honestly, that's probably not the first thing you're going to look at. As an ophthalmologist, you're looking at the eye and, you know, the conjunctiva, the palpebral eyelid surface. Those are all mucosal surfaces, which can have these neuromas pop up. Definitely, definitely. And then, you know, if it's like an oral boards question or, or something, then what I think they would want you to say is then you would examine the mouth after finishing your exam right. of the eye. Like that, you know, that's yeah. basically, yeah, <laughs> these neuromas. And you can think of the enlarged corneal nerves sort of like, you know, neuromas themselves, that they're these enlarged things. Mm, In fact... Yeah. Apparently, it's so prominent that uh, it's a hundred percent inheritance for patients who ha are carriers of this problem, which to take us back to step one days is caused by the RET proto oncogene, a mutation of the RET proto oncogene. So apparently, like it's like a legit thing for men to be, and like remember this if you remember nothing else we talked about with the notebook and stuff. Angie, what's the A stand for? A is the one. Corneal infection that everybody gets real scared about, acanthomoeba. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're all so scared of it usually is because of how, you know, devastating it can be for people's vision, but also how painful it is for folks with it. Part of that reason is because the thing travels along the corneal nerves, which thereby makes them look bigger. Right. The protozoa, that is the germ itself that does this, can also do some other weird stuff. It can make the cornea look like it's got pseudodendrites. There can be stromal infiltrates, just like you'd expect for any corneal ulcer. And then something called a Wesley immune ring. Can you tell us a bit more about what that is, Ben? Um, yes. This, the, <laughs> the immune ring, 
is Sorry. from uh, no 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 the immune ring. I don't have any notes on punt, it. But off punt, the dome, punt, punt. it's from a, it's from a type three hypersensitivity reaction. So that's where you have something like in the center of the cornea that releases antigen, and then you know the immune system comes from the lumbar blood vessels. So the antibodies kind of come from peripherally out to in. So you can get a ring from where these this kind of antigen source comes outward where the antibody source comes inward and you can get this like kind of a neat looking immune ring mm. that you can see. So <laughs> acanthamoeba is one of the causes as well as certain types of, you know, type 3 hypersensitivity reactions like certain medications can also cause this appearance. And then lastly, one more thing to remember, this is like probably the most likely reason that you'll see a confocal microscopy image on a test. Confocal microscopy can be helpful to diagnose acanthamoeba because when you do it, then you should be able to see these little cysts on confocal microscopy. So we see a picture that tells you it's confocal and you see weird cyst-looking things among the stroma and nerves and everything, then I would just think that that's a canthamoeba and go from there. So that's like, I think that's basically what I would want to know for confocal microscopy before going into my test. I'll do the next cause. It's called sure, Refsum's sure. disease, R-E-F-S-U-M, if you haven't heard of it. So, so this is a disease caused by the buildup of phytanic acid, P-H-Y-T-A-N-I-C. The main manifestation of it for the eye is actually retinitis pigmentosa. And again, we'll probably do a whole retinitis pigmentosa episode or miniseries, but what's important to remember is that this is one of the three, quote, treatable retinitis pigmentosas. So you can treat Refsum by holding their phytanic acid, like minimizing their dietary consumption of phytanic acid, which can improve a lot of their symptoms, retinitis pigmentosa, maybe slow down or, or halt the disease. Uh, Andrew, do you want to tell us what the other two treatable RPs are since we're talking about it? A-beta lipoproteinemia and gyrate atrophy. Right. Those are the other two that with dietary modification, you can reduce or possibly kind of, quote, treat the retinitis pigmentosa. So it's one of, like, those are maybe the three most important ones to know if you're going to see a patient with it. Uh, the last thing to know about refsums is systemically, they can also present with ichthyosis, which we're actually going to talk about more in a bit because that is spoilers, the eye in our mnemonic. But uh, but yeah, but refsums can also what's have... What's the mnemonic again? <laughs> remarking on large right. nerves. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Before what's, we migrated from refsum, I did want to mention, like, this would always bother me a bit because we've had episodes on other metabolic problems, right? The mucopolysaccharidosis episodes, the sphingolipidosis episodes, and then we never told you about refsums in either of those. So why is it like, it's obviously a metabolic problem. It's a buildup of this dietary intake thing, phytanic acid. It's not considered either in either of those other categories because phytanic acid is a fatty acid. And by definition, mucopolysaccharidoses are those where the body can't metabolize like a glycoprotein. And then in the sphingolipidoses, those are lysosomal storage disorders where the lysosome just can't break things down properly for different enzymatic deficiencies. So neither of those disease categories talks about fatty acid metabolic problems, which is why Refsum sort of is left on its own. Hmm. I did not know that. Thank you very Just much. to give you like the roadmap of these metabolic problems, because I was always annoyed with like refsums and some of the other random ones. Like, why don't yeah. you fit into my categorization? Yeah. That's the reason. Huh. Um, and if you want to know where the phytanic acid comes from, it generally comes from dairy products, ruminant animal fats, so animals that 
ruminate. <laughs> they're, they're ruminate, yeah. And uh, apparently some fish do too. It's like, here, I'll, I'll just, let me look it up for our, for our <laughs> Ruminant animals are herbivorous mammals that acquire nutrients from plant-based food and ferment them in a specialized stomach prior to digestion. Examples include cattle, <laughs> uh, wild bovine, <laughs> goats, sheep, giraffe, deer, gazelles, and antelopes. Those are just, I think, some I examples. See. And I just double-checked what I understood to be the dictionary definition of the word ruminate. Number one, to think deeply about something. But number two, to chew the curd. All right. These are curd chewers. So, uh, yeah. You can ruminate on something, and then you can ruminate on something. Yeah. So those are the things to not let your roughs and patients eat are cattle, goats, sheep, giraffe, deer, gazelles, and antelopes, as well as dairy milk <laughs> and apparently some fish. <laughs> I don't know how the fish make it. I don't know. Maybe it's like, you know, something to do with chlorophyll. Okay, let's, let's move on. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> but thank you for that aside. That was great. Where are we in remarking we're, right we're, now? We're, we're at the K. K, now. K is for keratoconus, which yeah. is the reason for it is similar to the edema part, the E in remarking. It's just another thing where it stands out in greater relief against the backdrop of what else is going on with the cornea. All right. That's all there is to really say about that. Yep. Then there's ichthyosis. Um, so if you don't remember from step one, I didn't have to review all this. Ichthyosis is a dermatologic condition that leads to hereditary dry skin and scaling. Like they get scaly skin. Um, I think that's what ichthy stands for, right? I mean, what that's, I think it's what. Ichthys yeah, like for, right? the like, ichthyosaur, the scaly dinosaur in the water. Oh my right? God, how the heck Is do you know that? that? Hang on. <laughs> no, I just looked it up too. Yeah, it's ichthyosaurs. I don't know. It was scaly. like one of my, the weird dinosaurs in my like, I don't know, fifth grade dinosaur. Are you like a book. dinosaur man? Not anymore. I had no idea. But oh, well, that's sad. Why not? I just always remembered this thing because I was like, I'm five years old. How the hell do you say this word? Ichthy, uh, whatever. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't know if I was five. I'm not uh -huh. sure I could read when I was five. <laughs> so what this has to do with the eyes, so there's a few manifestations with the eyes, as it can with the rest of your skin, can give you eyelid scaling, so you can get scaliness of your eyelids. And they can also get things like ectropion, um, cicatrical ectropion, and conjunctival thickening. So like some other dermatologic conditions can cause disruptions of your conjunctiva as well. What it has to do with this episode is that X-linked ichthyosis specifically can have both primary corneal opacities and more prominent uh, corneal nerves. Whereas ichthyosis vulgaris, which is the autosomal dominant type of ichthyosis, usually doesn't have these corneal opacities. So the way I would try to remember that is that X marks the spot in terms of having these spots on your cornea from X-linked ichthyosis. I think it's relatively low yield, but if you know ichthyosis can give you enlarged corneal nerves and that may help you on a test question or two. If you also are a dinosaur fan, just think of an ichthyosaur swimming through the ocean trying to find the X on the map. <laughs> right. Poor little things. Okay. What's the N stand for in remarking? One of your favorite two N words. That's terrible. Whoa. Sorry. Hang on. I was thinking <laughs> neurofibromatosis. <laughs> yeah. Please yeah, delete those are, that. <laughs> I do prefer those over other N words. This is true. <laughs> I only realized it as soon as it came out of my mouth. Anyway. Um, it's neurofibromatosis type one. Yeah. Um, 
So it's all the same stuff. We won't go into this because there was a whole episode on the neuro, on the, you know, the phacomatoses. But among all the things that neuro, NF type one can do, it can also give you more enlarged corneal nerves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, just like NF1 can give you gliomas where you get thickening of nerve sheaths, it can also thicken the nerve sheaths in your corneal nerves, so it can make them more prominent. Uh, Pop quiz, Ben. Uh-huh. What's the cell type in question that, you know, is aberrant in optic nerve gliomas? Is it an astrocyte, an oligodendrocyte, a Schwann cell, blah, blah, blah? <laughs> you know, up till just now, I thought it was an astrocyte, but now I'm questioning it. I have no idea. You are correct. Hey. Astrocytes, the glue of the eye, like glioma. <laughs> yeah, we, glue, we did that episode like two years ago, so could, 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 could be slow. Yeah, look at that. Your, your <laughs> flashcards are really oh, effective, look at that. Man. Look at that. <laughs> I, just, I dug deep there to answer yeah. that question. That's another test, often tested thing. So just yeah. repeatings for your benefit. Right. Repetition helps. Right. But I'll just say the mnemonic I remember to remember the manifestations and the diagnostic criteria for neurofibromatosis type 1. That my mnemonic to remember is Calborn. So the Calborn is cafe lay spots, axillary freckles for A, lish nodules for L, bony abnormalities, i.e., that sphenoid wing agenesis for B. Optic nerve gliomas for O, relatives who have NF1 for the R, and then neurofibromatoses for the N. Okay, what's the G stand for? Uh, the G, you'd think it would be my favorite, is glaucoma. But of course, all the glaucoma patients you've seen, you probably haven't noticed this. It's because it's more in the congenital types of glaucoma. Hello again, train. Hello, old friend. So, to be honest with you, I don't really treat kids, so I don't... Well, oh my god. That's a train being like, what? You don't treat kids? <laughs> yeah, for congenital glaucoma, I think it's a similar reason that like corneal edema can cause it. It just makes it look more prominent in relief. So Yeah, just it's that. just... Oh, the weird things happen to the cornea in congenital glaucoma. It just... Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're almost there. We've finished remarking, right? The yeah. mnemonic, but... This is the L that on large you, nerves. Right. The best I could do. Okay, <laughs> it was great. Marking I love, I love on it. Large nerves. The L. I don't know if we're gonna f- find a reason to come back to this. I don't know unless we do like a case on it. That's not the case. I hope we don't have, have more you reasons. Ever seen someone with this? <laughs> no, but I feel like you've talked about it a lot before. Like I feel like uh, you were subjecting us all one day in the Yale resident room to like a lecture on like armadillos or something. Uh, okay. Subjecting is a very, I was probably, I think <laughs> delighting the crowds and entertaining masses. Okay. Okay. So, so why would we talk about armadillos? Yeah. Why are we talking about armadillos at like seven in the morning on a Monday? <laughs> because leprosy can cause not only enlargement of corneal nerves, but kind of more specifically beating of those corneal nerves. For some reason, it starts super temporally. I don't know if anyone has any idea why. But leprosy, if you haven't read about it recently, is also known as Hansen's disease or mycobacterial leprae. So it's a mycobacterium. Uh, what's tricky about it is that it can incubate for many years. Like, uh, you know, I read eight to 10 years in one source. So if you're suspicious that someone might have leprosy, then really go back in their travel history. Because while it's extremely rare in North America, you know, it's still apparently endemic in places like Asia and Africa. 
And we talked about armadillos because they can carry this. Right, armadillos are leprous carriers, apparently. And I suspect Ben petted one once 10 years ago, and that's why he's been worried about it ever since. <laughs> Reading desperately about, <laughs> about leprosy, though. I've never like met an armadillo. Well, keep it that way. Animals of all kinds. Well, not every armadillo. That's pretty crazy against armadillos. (laughs) Armadillo has leprosy, I think. (laughs) So I can't verify that. I don't have it in my notes. Enlarged corneal nerves by itself is not like a a problem, but they can also get keratitis and uveitis as results of having leprosy. And then systemically, it can cause like granulomas, you know, of their skin and like peripheral nerves and everything. So like we won't go into a whole thing in leprosy. I'm sure that's a huge topic. But, you know, (laughs) know they can have keratitis and uveitis. And what can precede a bunch of these things early on the course is beating of the corneal nerves. In the supratemporal quadrant. Yeah. They're like granulomas of the corneal nerves. So, okay, uh, Andrew, do you Good want to job. go through one more time? Just just list off what the mnemonic was. Sure. Remarking on large nerves. Remarking on large nerves. R for Riley Day syndrome. That's the first R anyway, which you can have decreased tearing, decreased because of weird dysautonomic problems, not just reflex tearing, but also emotional tearing. Remarking E, edema. Just any cause of edema will make these nerves stand out. Remarking M. Multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2B. Actually, you can have it very rarely in 2A, but mostly 2B. This is the one you want to be careful that you catch it so that you can catch these people's potential other cancers like medullary thyroid or pheochromocytoma. Look for enlarged nerves. Look also for mucosal neuromas in the mouth, lips, conge, and eyelids. Back to remarking, letter A for acanthamoeba. This one's pretty easy because you all remember what to look out for for acanthamoeba. But look out for probably the most characteristic thing, the Wesley immune ring, which is almost like the, an annular corneal ulcer. And confocal microscopy shows cysts along these nerves that are enlarged. Back to remarking the second R for refsums, problem of metabolic disorder where you can't process phytanic acid that you get through your diet from, <laughs> from weird animals that graze. Uh, They're not weird. They're like cows and stuff. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) I just kept thinking ruminating. This can lead to a form of retinitis pigmentosa, but thankfully one that you can deal with and can also present with this ichthyotic appearance, which is a scaliness to your skin and stuff. You treat it by restricting phytanic acid. Back to the mnemonic remarking, we're at the K, keratoconus, same thing as the edema, just the weird changes in the cornea make the nerves look bigger. Back to remarking I, letter I for ichthyosis, hereditary dry skin and scaling with also other things you think about on the cornea related to that, like ectropion, conjunctival thickening, and scaliness, even some cicatricial, cicatricizing stuff, right, Ben? Yep. Um, Can have some occasionally weird corneal opacities, particularly in the X-linked variant of ichthyosis, so think of it. I don't know, the dinosaur ichthyosaur swimming in the ocean looking for the X marks, the spot, wherever it's going. Who knows what fish do. Back to remarking N for neurofibromatosis type 1. Remember Ben's Calborn mnemonic and listen to the phacomatosis episode again. G for glaucoma, but congenital glaucoma. Again, back to the whole thing where weird things in the cornea, like edema, deformities can make the nerves stand out in relief more. And then, not on remarking, but the letter L, so remarking on large nerves, leprosy, with possibly a, a potential for beading 
of the corneal nerves in the supratemporal quadrant and a bunch of granulomas. Yeah. That's it. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears at the number four. And our website is eyes4ears.com with the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found us is really helpful. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. Bye. Bye.